every happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. David, I've got my popcorn out. I am ready for another story about history. Oh, good, because that's what I've got to tell you. That's what we do here on the podcast, stories about history. So settle in and I will ask the question that I always start the podcast with. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's April 9th, 1694. And in London's fashionable Bloomsbury Square, a young man stands waiting as in the early dawn, a carriage pulls up, a wealthy young nobleman alights, walks into the square, both men draw their swords, and in a brief moment, the swords cross, they clash, and then the man who descended from the carriage is run through and falls to the ground dead, leaving John Law, the famous economist, standing alone once again in Bloomsbury Square. Oh, just another typical boring economics story, eh, David? That's the plan, yes. All right, no, it doesn't sound boring at all. Why is an economist fighting in a square in London in the early morning? Dave, we've got to dig into this. Set the scene for us in London in 1694. Yes, so the first point to know about economics in the 1690s is that it's not really an academic discipline at this point. You can't go to a school and study economics. It's not formalized yet. There's no you know, formal body that will declare you to be an economist or not to be one. You just have to be interested in money and in how it works. And then if you put some effort in and study it, well, then I guess you're an economist. So there's no London School of Economics. There is no London School of Economics for John Law to be studying at. And in 1694, he's a young man. He's already made a name for himself with bold proposals to the crown of England for how they should be running their financial system. But mostly his real business is not studying economics, because like I said, that's not a job yet. Instead, he mostly works as a professional gambler. Okay, that makes a little bit of sense, I guess. Economics, gambling, sort of the same field in terms of playing around with money, but not something we'd really think of today. There aren't a lot of people uh, sitting on the Fed chair and going to Vegas on the weekends. I mean, it's true that the two fields have separated by now, but some of John Law's most famous work in our retrospective view of him is actually his early work on probability, which he was not studying for, you know, high-minded, abstract 
mathematical reasons. So is he able to use his economics to give himself an edge at the gambling table? Well, not yet. At this early point, he's young, he's, you know, come to London and he's living the high life. But his gambling is not necessarily super successful. He's not particularly wealthy, although he's not broke either. But he's living it up in high social circles and getting a chance to actually present his economic ideas to the powerful people that matter. It's exciting. He falls in love at least a couple of times, which is probably why he ends up fighting a duel with Mr. Wilson, uh, which is where we started this podcast. Although we don't actually know for sure what specific dispute led them to choose to cross blades in Bloomsbury Square. So who is Mr. Wilson? What do we know about him? So Mr. Wilson is personally just a fashionable, incredibly wealthy young man about town. His family, though, are a noble English family who are extremely well-connected at court. He's related to several important advisors to the king, but he himself has just been living off of his family's astounding amounts of money, gambling and falling in love in the same circles as Mr. Law. All right, so we may not know the exact reason for the duel, David, but it sounds like there's a lot of crossover here. If they're both gambling and they're both falling in love in the same circles, those are the types of things that tend to lead to duels. They are, but unfortunately, John Law doesn't have the same kind of connections at court. He's actually from a banking and goldsmithing family, uh, which helps to explain how he has the money to be a professional gambler. But it's not going to help him now, because Mr. Wilson's father is not thrilled about what just happened. And he puts Mr. Law on trial with a charge of murder. Is this unusual for 1694, David? Because I think Sometimes when we think back on the past, we think people were dueling all over the place. Is that true, or were, or did duels tend to end in murder charges? So, it's unusual, but it's not unheard of. Typically, duels are between noblemen, and they're organized very formally, and both sides and their families agree not to make a bigger issue out of it than the fight, than the duel. But for somebody like John Law, who's not necessarily connected, doesn't have those kind of agreements made, it's very unusual that he was willing to fight a duel with Mr. Wilson at all. And unfortunately for him, that means that the courts are not necessarily going to look at this as just a wacky adventure. So he could be in some real trouble here. What is his defense? Does he offer anything up? Well, his defense is that it was, in point of fact, a duel, and that both traditionally and to a certain degree in law, there are protections for duelists that aren't generally offered for other people accused of murder. But unfortunately for him, 
the judge refuses to accept his plea that it was, in point of fact, a formal organized duel, and he is found guilty of murder and thrown in jail. Not a good place for an economist to be, David. You know what they do to economists in jail? I I don't know, I'm just making that up, but is this the end of our story, David? Well, not quite, because it turns out that John Law may not have a lot of friends at court, but he does happen to know one guy who tries to get him out legally by getting a pardon from the king, and when that doesn't work, they turn to different methods, which is how, surprisingly, the guards at the prison where he is incarcerated open the door to his cell, escort him to the front gate, and let him walk away a free man despite the fact that he is, in theory, still guilty of murder and still incarcerated in England. They don't seem to be very good guards, David. Well, they were almost certainly bribed. Who by? Where the money came from? Again, not always clear. But one thing is clear, and that is that for young Mr. John Law, staying in England is no longer the best choice for his health. Right, he's got to get out of town now because he's just broken out of jail? Is that basically it? That's it. So he heads to Holland initially, and he decides when he gets there that now that he's no longer in close contact with his family and his family's money, It's time to step up his gambling game and make himself a fortune. So what is his gambling game? What sorts of gambling does he do, David? Well, he's into all of your standards. He's going to tour Europe for the next decade, actually, playing cards at all of the most famous European card-playing events from Amsterdam to Venice. Dice, of course, he's a major dice player, but his most successful and perhaps most surprising game turns up in Amsterdam, in Holland, where he's living. He gets involved in a organization that's running the Dutch National Lottery, which is a big business at the time, and he offers insurance. If you buy a certain number of lottery tickets, John Law and company will insure your potential winnings to make sure that you won't lose everything if you happen not to win. All right, David, I'm no economist, but how exactly does this work? How can you insure someone to win the lottery? Don't most people not win the lottery? It turns out later that John Law and his friends are actually rigging the Dutch National Lottery, and the way that this scheme is working is that they're simply recruiting a wide variety of people to be the winners of the lottery through advertising this insurance scheme, which requires you to buy a large number of tickets and also pay them a fair amount of money up front before you receive your winnings. When that comes out, the Dutch government are unhappy with Mr. Law, but before they manage to get their hands on him, 
he's across yet another border, heading for France. He's doing a good job of staying one step ahead of the law, David. He escaped prison in England. He slipped away from the Dutch. Now he's in France. Now he's in France. And his first move is to attempt to contact the Duc d'Orleans, the French king's brother, and offer to run the French national lottery system, which they were currently proposing to set up at the time. Shockingly, his offer was not accepted. They didn't want him to run their national lottery after he used the Dutch national lottery to run a scam? I know, I know, it's a shock, but this initial effort to get in contact with the Duke pays off, and he ends up becoming friends with the Duke and spending some time on more ordinary gambling with the Duke and in his circle. So a few years later, the Duke becomes regent of France when his brother dies with the heir to the throne too young to take up his duties immediately. And John Law, now good buddies with the regent, has a new plan. He wants to set up a bank, a national bank. Is this an unusual idea for Europe at the time, David? Well, it's a new idea in Europe. The English established their national bank only a few decades before. The Dutch have had a national bank slightly longer than the English. And other than those two, there's virtually no national banks anywhere in Europe, certainly not in France. But the idea has a certain appeal because the finances of all of the major kingdoms in this era are in terrible shape. And England and Holland seem to be doing pretty well with their national banks, so there's a certain temptation to see if it can work out elsewhere. All right, so is he able to convince the regent of France to give him the keys to the bank, so to speak, to let him set up a national bank? So the regent is interested, but he also doesn't quite trust Mr. Law. I have no idea why. So the compromise they come to is that they will set up a bank together, and if that bank is successful, they'll just transfer it over into being a national bank after it's run for a little bit of time. It's a bit of an unusual setup, David. It's a little bit unusual, but it's got its appeal. So John Law goes looking, finds a few investors amongst the French nobility, sets up a bank, runs it for a bit. It's running well. The region agrees. Time to turn this into a national bank. So France will have its national bank now. Is John Law going to be at the head of it, David? John Law will be the head of the new French National Bank. And it's exciting because he has big ideas. He starts telling the Duke about how France's taxation system is awful. It's terrible. It's poorly designed. It's inconsistent. It taxes some people way too much. It taxes other people way too little. It needs to change. And the National Bank should, in John Law's opinion, be at the head of a big reorganization of the taxation system, the system of the national debt, 
and also of the financial system of France. He wants big changes, but of course, big changes are going to require him to raise big money. Can he just raise taxes now that he's in charge here, or how's he going to get the money that he needs, David? So his trouble is that the taxation system of France at this point works through what they call tax farmers. These are private individuals who are contracted by the government to raise taxes, and if they, they have to pay a set amount into the treasury before they do that, and any extra taxes they manage to raise, they get to keep. So that's not a great system. Right, it's sort of a private, skimming off the top type tax system. It kind of works the same way beers are sold at Fenway Park. Exactly. So he wants to change this, but the regent is unwilling to just get all of the tax farmers who are wealthy and connected be unemployed immediately. So instead, the agreement is that if he can raise money, he can buy his way into being a tax farmer, basically having the bank be a tax farmer for the French government, taking over these contracts through a fair-ish bidding process. But again, that brings John Law back to his initial problem. He needs to find a way to convince people to give him lots and lots of money. I'm guessing he's not going to be able to run another insurance scam? No, that doesn't seem like it's going to be convincing to people. That's the problem with scams. You can really only run them once. But John Law has read a lot about economics in this time period, and he's heard about an unusual idea. They tried out Sweden and a few other places at various times, but which has never really caught on in Europe yet. They call it paper money. It's like gold coins, but they're made of paper. And John Law thinks that's a great idea. Why would he think that's a great idea, David? Well, the big attraction for Mr. Law, obviously, is that he can print the money. He doesn't have gold, that's his issue. But he does have paper, so he can make money by printing money. That's really appealing to him. But he argues that it's also going to be good for France. And the reason why it's going to be good for France is because this is going to allow them to have more money in circulation, which they need because there's not enough gold in the country and it's holding up doing business when the currency is valued too highly. So he's going to untether the currency from gold, David. How unique an idea is this for the time? Are people shocked by this idea that for the first time their money won't be based on actual pieces of gold? Well, they're not, because John Law doesn't tell them that he's going to untether the money from gold. Ah. He tells them he's going to have all of the gold in his bank, safe, where it's protected. And you're going to have paper notes telling you how much gold in the bank you're entitled to without ever having to actually see, touch, or interact with that gold in any way, shape, or form. 
which will be much more convenient for everyone, especially John Law. So people are pretty happy with that, but really he's not going to have all that gold. He's going to print more money than he has gold. That is going to happen, although initially he tries to limit how much. He has a little bit more paper money circulating than gold, but not too much, which becomes a problem because he was doing this to raise money, and he's only raising a little bit of money. So he gets a second big idea for how he can raise a bunch of money in a short period of time. This time, he's going to create a joint stock company. This is an idea, again, out of Holland and England, which are the most financially advanced countries in Europe at the time, where you get people to invest money into a company that hopefully is going to make more money over the period of a year and pay them back. Sure, sounds pretty familiar to us today, David. It's fairly common for people to have stocks, companies to put out stocks, and investing. That's what the whole system is based on. So, John Law decides he's going to found a company, and it's going to trade with Louisiana, which is currently a French possession at this time. He calls it the Mississippi Company, because the Mississippi River is in Louisiana, so that's a reasonable name. And he issues stock, and it becomes a massive hit. People are buying his stock. People are buying this stock at a ridiculous pace, and it encourages other joint stock companies to crop up and John Law gets involved in a bunch of those too and suddenly France is going nuts they're going nuts for stocks they want to buy stocks the money is rolling and John Law gets convinced that business is so good it must prove his paper money is working so he prints more of it and there's more money rolling there's so much money coming into the hands of people who bought stock early that they actually have to come up with a new word, a word that never existed before to describe these people. They call them millionaires. He has created millionaires. This sounds great, David. Times are booming in France, and I'm going to guess that nothing bad ever happens with stocks and trading. Everything is going great. Everybody has a crazy story. There's a servant who gets told by his boss to go and buy the stock at the price of 8,000 livres because that's a good price to buy it for. So he goes to do it and he finds somebody who's selling it for only 6,000 because he's lucky, pockets the extra 2,000 livres his boss gave him, uses it to buy some stock, not a lot of stock, and he ends up getting so rich he hires a guy to do his old job so that he can spend all of his time working the stock market. It's exciting. It's hot. There's so much money coming in. Everybody loves it. Everything is great. Clearly nothing bad is going to happen. Very clearly, David. And in a crazy coincidence, at roughly the same time, the British government gets involved with a joint stock company interested in trading overseas. They're interested in trading to the South Seas, so they call themselves the South Seas Company. And they're making a ton of money. Their stock's only going up. Everything's great there too. People start to think, 
maybe we've just solved it. We've figured out how to do capitalism so well. Everybody's going to get rich forever. Nothing bad will ever happen. Then 1720 rolls around and the good times end. What happens in 1720, David? So you remember the tax farmers, the guys who John Law is plotting to raise all this money to buy out and get rid of their sweet, cushy jobs where they're making a ton of money. I remember them. This is going to shock you, but they don't actually like that. They don't want that to happen. So they get an idea. And what is their idea, David? Maybe this John Law guy is not actually holding all of the gold in the bank to match up with the paper money that he says he's holding. Maybe we should find out by getting a lot of paper money, a lot of paper money, and going to the bank and saying, hey, we want to pull our gold out. You said we could pull out gold in return for this paper money. We want to get all of the gold that this paper money represents out right now. Right now. So to use the term that a gambler like John Law might understand, they're calling his bluff. They show up at the bank. I should point out, they're not the first people to have this idea. John Law's bank has a lot of gold on hand because a lot of different people have tried to show up and demand all the money out. And every time they've paid that money out and gotten even more people desperate to get those paper notes back in circulation because clearly they're good for it. But this time, it's too big. It's too much. They don't have that much gold in the vaults. They can't pay it out. And when other people hear that, they start panicking too. They start asking themselves, is this paper money worth anything? Are these stocks worth anything? Has this company actually traded at a profit in its actual trading business with Louisiana ever once in its entire existence? Side note, it has not. This company is incredibly poorly managed and has been losing money at a ridiculous rate. So they're trying to sell their stocks and they're starting to realize it's not that many people who want to buy. And suddenly it's all going away. All of it. The paper money, the stocks, all of the money, the millionaires. And over the course of only a few months, it collapses so much that once again, John Law is fleeing the country just ahead of, frankly, not particularly well-defined legal charges of people who are really angry at him, even if they can't define what he's done that's actually illegal. That is a tricky case, David. When you lose all your money in the stock market crash, you want to blame somebody. And in this case, John Law is that somebody. So... Does he escape, David, or does he have to duel again? He gets out. He makes it to Venice. Unfortunately, he doesn't get to bring very much of his money along, and he ends up dying in poverty, although not alone. His wife stands with him to the end in 1729. Is this really the first stock market crash, David? The Mississippi Company and the South Seas Company both crash in 1720. 
You can argue about which one is first because it depends on how you define a crash starting, but they both start to decline at around the same time. And not counting the tulip bubble in Holland, which is very famous in its own right, these are the first two ever stock market crashes. And over 200 years before the big one that we all know that happened in 1929 and kicked off the Great Depression. David, what a twisting and turning story of a guy who started off as a dueling gambler, made it to the very top of France and created the world's first stock market crash out of paper money. And he may have not gotten to take much money with him, but the ideas end up living on, carrying on, and really that's how our entire system works today, correct? More or less. More or less. Hopefully with less of the crashing and more of the everyone getting rich and being happy. But interesting to see where it all started. Thanks for telling us, David. Always happy to tell these stories, Neil. And we hope you will continue to listen to them. Make sure you subscribe, like, and review the podcast. We really appreciate all of that. And you can follow us at When Art Thou on social media. David, this story reminded me of another gambler who got famous for really changing the game. James Holzhauer. Have you heard of him, David? I can't say offhand that I have. Well, if you've been paying attention to Jeopardy recently, James Holzhauer went on an absolutely epic run and really changed the strategy of Jeopardy, how people were playing the game. He was a gambler from Vegas, came in and used that knowledge and that skill of uh, risk and chance to really have a great run on Jeopardy. Just recently came to an end. David, I bring this up because we always like to end our podcast with a game, a little quiz, not unlike Jeopardy. You ready to play a quiz? I am fired up, Neil. All right. Today we have a quiz of how many. We're going to do some pretty simple counting, David, and uh, see if you can figure out how many it took to get some of these things done. For example, our first question, how many presidents did it take to get a bathroom in the White House? Ah, that's an interesting question. Most people count in years. We're going to count, in this case, in presidents. All right. I would guess something like 19. You're a little high, David. It was actually seven presidents. The first bathing room, as it was called, was installed in the White House during Andrew Jackson's presidency. Next question. How many British expeditions did it take to summit Mount Everest? Hmm. I'm honestly not sure. Perhaps four. It took nine British expeditions and upwards of 16 European expeditions in total for Hillary and Norgay to eventually reach the summit of Mount Everest in 1953. All right, David. Here's an easy one for you. How many tries did it take to invent WD-40? I would guess 40 tries. You're right. It's right there in the name, 40 tries before they invented WD-40. So if you're trying to invent something, stick with it. Could take many tries. 
How many World Cups, David, did it take for Brazil to win? World Cups. Wow. I'm not really a soccer guy. So I'm going to guess high. How about 23? You're much too high, David. Brazil is pretty good at soccer. It took six tries for them to win their first World Cup in 1958. And they've won four more since then. Last question in our quiz, David. How many bankruptcies did it take before Henry Ford succeeded with the Ford Motor Company? Huh, I can't imagine that it was that many. I'll guess two. Bang on! The third time was the charm after two bankruptcies for Henry Ford. And a little bit of an inspiration there, David. Perseverance, stick with it, whether you're inventing WD-40, starting a car company, or scamming people of various economies in Europe. Just stick with it. Thanks for playing along, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening. 